Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. just want to once again welcome everyone who is in person and those who are watching online. It's a joy to be in the house of God. And today we are continuing our series from the book of Nehemiah and we are on the second part of Nehemiah. We looked at the first part which was the restoration of the wall of Jerusalem and the second part starting from chapter 8, we are looking at the restoration of the people of Judah. If you recall last time we looked at chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we looked at the new residents in the new city of Jerusalem. Now the context of that was the walls were built, the gates erected, the people have been ushered in, the spiritual and the civil law and order has been restored in Jerusalem. So people were really in a festive mood. That's what he looked at last time. It was a party time for them. It's a sense of belonging, a sense of freedom in the air for them. Finally, I'm back in my hometown. You know, as I read this, and I I was reminded of a celebration that took place in November of 1989, and some of you were not even born at that time, but I'm not sure how many of you remember the time when the Berlin Wall was brought down. I know some of us were able to witness that. I vividly remember the jubilation by one and all who were present on both sides of the wall, Some of us had the privilege of witnessing the celebrations on national television when the Berlin Wall finally was brought down. Now, amidst the rubble at that time, we were able to see there were mass hysterics of cheering and dancing and singing and hugging and crying, the celebration that was heard around the world. A festive scene almost identical to this 20th century phenomena occurred thousands of years ago in Nehemiah's days. The difference here, church, is that the celebration was centered around a wall being raised up, not torn down. Behind these walls, there was renewed vision, a fresh hope, and a growth of a barren city. We could see the commerce was slowly budding up, the homes were sprouting up, and an influx of new groups of people were brought in. And they are bringing back into this city a healthy glow. A city now all of a sudden becoming woken up, it's waking, awakening from a long, long sleep. That's what I looked at in chapter 11. Today we are in chapter 12, so if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to chapter 12, the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is actually taking us to a springtime celebration in Jerusalem, to a festival, to a dedication of the wall surrounding Jerusalem. Now, as you read through the book of uh, Nehemiah, chapter 12, there's a whole long list of names, even starting from Nehemiah, chapter 11 and chapter 12. Nehemiah resumes his narrative with the preparation for dedication on verse number 27. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, I'm reading verse 27, 
they, who is this they? It's Nehemiah and Ezra, sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing with cymbals and stringed instruments and harp. So what we are seeing here is the two leaders, Nehemiah and Ezra, to pull off this celebration, but they really needed the help of the group of men called the Levites. That's what they're seeing here. Now, recruiting these men was not a simple task. It's not like making a few phone calls or having a sign-up sheets and asking people to sign up. It, is a, it was a very difficult thing for Nehemiah and Ezra to, to appoint these people. Because I want you to note that these people, they were not priests who were they were not the moody guys. They were not the grumpy guys. They were, they were not the joyless people. They are not people who would say, oh my Lord, now what pastor, what's next? What do you have in mind? It is not that type of people that he is recruiting here. According to verse 27, as you look at this, they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with what? With gladness. With hymns of thanksgiving with songs to accompany, accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and, uh, and instruments and harps. So today, we are going to look at some aspects or some characteristics of these leaders who were called to serve in the new city, Jerusalem. That's what we're going to look at today. I know that many of us would like to serve the Lord. Some of us because we want to serve the Lord. Some of us because we have to serve the Lord. Some of us because we, want to lo we love the Lord. Some of us because we love people. But yet there are some of us, we love the frills and the fame attached to serving. Today's study may help us to evaluate if we have the right mindset to serve the Lord. So I want to respond to a question what does it take for someone to serve the Lord? What does it take for someone to serve the Lord? Do you need seminary training? Do you need to be an expert in Hebrew or Greeks or theology? Do you need a degree from a university or a college? I just want to tell you, certainly these things may be helpful in some parts of the ministry. I'm not minimizing that. But they are not the main thing. They are not the main thing. The answer is quite simple, though. If you really look at who the Lord recruited to serve Him as disciples, you'll find the answers. Most of them were fishermen. Some were tradesmen. Some were tax collectors. And there was only one person who was a PhD holder. You could call it a PhD holder, Apostle Paul, who became an apostle later on, who was chosen to serve the Lord. But most of the other people that you are looking at, they were not highly educated people. In all whom the Lord selected, there was one thing that was common. Their hearts were right with the Lord. Their hearts was right with the Lord. So church, the main requirement for being involved in the ministry is that our hearts must be right before the Lord. Our hearts must be right before the Lord. So in this chapter, in this narrative, we see there are three aspects or three characteristics of a heart that is right before the Lord. We're going to look at just three of those. 
So let me read verse number 30 here. Then the priests and Levites purified. Let's repeat that word, purified. Then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates and the wall. So the first characteristics we note is that in order to serve the Lord, you need to have a purified heart. A purified heart. So I really want to take some time, spend some time on this very central aspect of leadership because everything that we do stems from there. Everything. If we don't have a purified heart, we are not fit to serve. All aspects of service stems from there. So the text says, before they dedicated the wall, the priests and the Levites purified themselves, purified the people, the gates and the wall. So what does this word purification symbolize? What does it symbolize? It symbolizes the fact that the hearts are sinful. It symbolizes the fact that God is absolutely holy. It symbolizes the fact there is an intentional process that must take place within us to come right with God. That's what it symbolizes. Purified Purification simply means that. So those who serve Him must be cleansed from all known sin of thought, word, and deed. So whether we are a pastor or an elder or a ministry leader or serving in any capacity in the church, every one of us, all of us, struggle against temptation. All of us are vulnerable to fall into sin. But if we are not guarding ourselves from temptation and not walking in consistent victory over sin, we should not claim of being even a believer. Why? Because we should not even get involved in ministry. I know I'm making a very harsh statement here. But stay with me as I go through this. First, we should humble ourselves before God, repent of all our sins, and take measures to protect ourselves from falling again. Purity on the heart level is an essential requirement for Christian service. So then you may ask the question here, Pastor, then no one is fit to serve the Lord. No one is fit to serve the Lord. Because all are sinners and all have failed. The Bible says so, and we know it's so. So church, when you hear a scandal about a pastor or a leader of the church, how heartbreaking it is for us. How heartbreaking it is. You simply shame the Christian faith, the body of Christ, and Christ himself. So when that sort of hypocrisy is exposed, the world mocks the name of Christ. The heart is the very seat of our soul, our emotions, and our passions. It is the very essence of our being that drives our thoughts and our motives. That is why God tells us to guard our hearts. So the heart of a leader is the foundation of his or her life. It is what drives his or her passion for the Lord and for the service in the kingdom. So we know, church, that our hearts can spew some of the most ungodly thoughts and attitudes. Even in the midst of ministry. There are times as leaders you get across 
with people and with situations and some individuals and you cannot help it because we are dealing with people. Sometimes we wonder ministry will be so easy if there are no people involved. When the thoughts are not pleasing to the Lord, my spirit feeling was not coming from God, it was coming from the enemy. Even though I may feel righteous in my motive, it was certainly not the best way to handle things. I'm sure all of us are guilty of that. We have done that. As leaders, we must constantly be aware that the enemy will do everything he can to make us ineffective in the service of the Lord. Those who are serving would vouch for that. The enemy will do anything and everything to make us ineffective. And I must admit, over the past 30 years in my ministry, there are many times I had come to the Lord, before the Lord, and, and I prayed to Him, I cried out to Him like David did. Many times, church. It's a confession I'm making. And I cry out, I create in me a pure heart of God, a renewed steadfast spirit within me. And David says, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. This should be our daily prayer, church, for those who want to serve the Lord. Create in me, God, a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. The comfort here, church, is this. This is what the Lord has promised. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. If the Lord has said it, it is true and yes, in Christ, isn't it? That's what he has said. So we don't need to struggle because the Lord has given us the assurance that I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That should be our prayer. That should be the hope that we have as, as leaders and as ministry workers. So to be a servant leader, that's what we all call to be. We need to keep in mind that we are servants first and leaders second. We must learn to model Christ-like servanthood in every situation. We must be strong in our wholehearted devotion to Him and remember whom we are working for. Church, our hearts must be right. Paul says to the saints in Colossae, this is what he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Anything you do, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And listen to that. Note this, church. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. You are serving the Lord. You are not serving anyone else. When you serve, always remember, it is always an audience of one. You are not serving me. I am not serving you. It's an audience of one. So purity me also means, church, our lives must be above reproach and blameless. Please follow along very carefully this particular aspect of it. What does it mean, pastor, you may ask? The dictionary defines reproach as this. Shame or disgrace or that which brings rebuke or censure upon a person. 
the Bible speaks of being above reproach or blameless as this, one of the distinctive marks of those who aspire to the office of an elder or deacon within the church, I would even extend it to every believer because every believer is called to be involved in the ministry of reconciliation. Every one of you. You have been asked to live a life above reproach, blameless. The one with a pure heart will lead a life above reproach. Their love for the Lord, their work for the church, as well as their interaction with others are to be of such moral quality that they do not bring shame or in any way disgrace the body of Christ or the name of Jesus. You know, this holds true not only within the church, but also outside of it as well. Church, it is always easy to be holy within the body of Christ. It is when you're driving on the roads. It is when you're doing your work in your workplaces, in your schools, above reproach. Now, that does not mean that without sin. I told you that all of us, every one of us, no Christian lives an entirely sinless life. That's not what I'm talking about. Nor will we, until we reach the glorified state in heaven, we will continue to sin. So above reproach means this, that the servant is sensitive to sin, that the servant is, has short accounts with God, that the servant is free from sinful habits. That's what above reproach means. The servant avoids behaviors that would impede his setting. The highest ta Christian standard that the others can emulate his behavior and lifestyle. The others should be able to say, or you should be able to tell the others, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That is a life about reproach. The servant must not give cause for those outside the church to point the finger at, it, at its reputation. Being above reproach means that no one can honestly bring a charge or accusation against you. That is why Paul says, to avoid all appearance of evil. To avoid all appearance of evil. So in essence, church, the servants... I'm talking to every one of you, talking to everyone who is watching online. Every believer. Our character that is unimpeachable, impeccable, who are esteemed highly within their community, every person looking at you will be able to say, I cannot find him to be at fault. Even if he makes a mistake, he is quick to repent. They are known for their wholesome life and untarnished integrity. That's how you should be known. They are of good character and reputation. Being above reproach should be an ongoing aim for every believer. All, every one of us. So now you might ask the question, Pastor, how about the gray areas of life? That's a tough question to ask. So what are the gray areas in life, in Christian walk? Gray areas are issues that Scripture does not take a dogmatic stance on. Gray areas, or at least the very least, issues that Scripture does not discuss in depth. 
Let me repeat that. The gray areas are issues that Scripture does not take a dogmatic stance on. Or issues that Scripture does not discuss in depth. Some of the gray areas, examples are these. People struggle with this. I'm sure many of you have asked these questions. Your children would have asked these questions. Even you would have asked these questions. What entertainment is acceptable to, for a believer? What kind of music is okay? What should be the dress code? Can I wear this today? Is ear piercing okay? How about tattoo? What can you eat and what you cannot eat? How about alcohol or even wine in moderation? And the list can go on and on and on, church. Gray areas that the scripture is not very dogmatic about. So I did some research and I came up with this. John MacArthur leads us through a series of questions that every believer is called to ask. So next time you come across a gray area, I'm going to list these questions for you. And this will definitely help you to conclude what we should do. Here's the list. Number one, will it benefit me spiritually? Whatever the action is, will that benefit me spiritually? Second, will it bring bondage? Third, will it defile God's temple? Fourth, will it cause anyone to stumble? Five, will it further the cause of evangelism? Six, will it violate my conscience? Seven, will it bring glory to God? Now, this itself is a different study. And on the list is not mine, it is from John MacArthur's. And he has given scripture references for that. So church, if there is an iota of doubt, don't do it. This is avoiding the appearance of evil. Living above reproach. You will never doubt that the crow is black. You will never doubt it. If there is a doubt, avoid it. Because you are not sure about it. That's why there is a doubt. So church, if there is any art of doubt, don't do it. So the first characteristics that we have seen in serving God is that you must possess a pure heart. You must be above reproach. Avoid all appearance of evil. The second one that we see is that you must possess, I'll tell you what it is and then will work through that, is a worshipful heart. Look at verse number 31. And I'm going to, there are a series of verses that we can look at from this narrative. We don't have time for that. Verse 31, it says, So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. And as you read through in verse 38, the other thanksgiving choir went the opposite way. Verse 40, so the two thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. It's all about worshipping God, he's talking about. And verse 43, look at on the screen, it says, so also that day they offered great sacrifices. So the second important event or characteristics, the servant needs to have a worshipful heart. The dedication of the wall was the time not to praise Nehemiah, but to praise the Lord. 
So Nehemiah organized two choirs to walk in the opposite directions on the top of the wall until they converged at the temple. They sang praises as they went along to the accompaniment of cymbals and harps and lyres. And he set up the whole system of worship. Church, God doesn't want your work. Please listen carefully. If he doesn't have your worship. Let me repeat that. God does not want your work if he doesn't have your worship. To worship God is to rejoice and extol his great attributes and actions. True worship is not just outward, but inward. It engages your mind, your heart, your will, your emotions. Whether you are serving on the board or setting up chairs or sanitizing the church or picking up the garbage or preaching a sermon, any form of serving, or if you can serve as ushers, serving in worship, serving on, the, serving on any committees, it ought to flow out of a heart of worship for God. Because it is not a chore, it is not a job that you are doing, it's a calling. So when you have no interest in worship, in things of God, such as prayers or Bible study or corporate worship or men's and women's fellowship and so on and so forth, it is an indication that your heart is not tuned with God. When your heart is not tuned, you're not fit for service. For serving God is not a chore or a job, it is a calling, it is done out of reverence for Christ. So there are at least three ingredients for the true worship. The true worship, number one, the true worship has humility. Without humility, you cannot worship God. Humility is the first key to any successful time of worship. Now, throughout the entire Bible, the primary Hebrew and Greek words for worship mean humility. That's what it means. Without that, you cannot truly worship Humility means to lower yourself, submit yourself to the will of another. In this case, it is submission of the whole, to the Holy Spirit and allowing the Spirit to, to, uh, to act, act and walk and speak and in and through you. True worship will cause us to obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So whatever decision that you make, whatever action that you are saying is directed by the Holy Spirit because you are humble enough to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It is not about trying to keep a schedule or, or songs to be sung or announcements to be made, but in humility, allowing the Spirit to work in our lives, to break us, to melt us, to mold us, to make us into the people we should be. Church, when I first came to know the Lord, that was my prayer. God, break me. God, melt me. Because I was a big-headed man. I said, break me, melt me, and mold me, and make me into the person you want me to be. Humility. We should be humble enough to bow down and to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Secondly, you need the humility. Second one you need is faith. In Hebrews 11.6, it says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. You cannot please God without faith. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Earnestly seek Him means it's translated as worship. So we can flip this passage and we can say those who worship Him must have faith that He exists and He will reward them. 
So the second component is that you need to have faith. Third component is that you need to have obedience. So we looked at three. Obedience is the key to that finalizes our worship. We cannot come to the Lord unless first we have humility. We humble ourselves. Then as we enter His presence, we'll begin to speak to us and we must make the decision to believe in Him or not. That is the faith. And the third component is if everything is in vain, if you do not put it in action and, and through obedience, that's when the Lord will be able to look down and say, Behold, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. So church, we looked at two things so far. Number one, we looked at we should have a pure heart. That means you must be above reproach and avoid all appearance of evil. Number two, we looked at that you must possess a worshipful heart. You must have humility, you must have faith, you must have obedience. And finally, thirdly, we must have a joyful heart. Let's look at verse 43. Also, now as you look at verse 43, you get the distinct impression that these people were enjoying themselves. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. So the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. Wow. Look at the word rejoice and joy within this verse. Chuck Swindle puts it this way. He said, it's a sort of Jewish Disneyland parade. That is how he describes in his commentaries. What happened on that day? It was like a Disneyland parade. I want you to look at this verse and see there are at least four times this word joy is mentioned. It says the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. The joy of Jerusalem. Church, note this. It wasn't their song that was heard from afar. It was not their voice that was heard from afar. It was the joy that was heard. Outsiders heard their joy. It was the fragrance of Jesus emitting from them that they saw, that they witnessed. So let me ask a question, church. What is God's will for you in Christ Jesus? This is the reason why I'm asking you this question. Look at this. It's a great eye-opener for me. Paul writes here, he says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So what is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you? Is to rejoice always and pray without ceasing. In everything giving thanks. We need to be so caught up with what God has done. This great joy radiates from every one of us. Paul is writing as he wrote this passage, writing to folks who had experienced persecution and knew there was more coming persecution. And we are in a pandemic situation like that today. People who are grieving the loss of loved ones and people experiencing all sorts of life, Paul says, rejoice always. That's what we have been called to do. In essence, Paul is saying in all this, remember that you are in Christ. Take there is a joy that is yours that can never be taken away. Be joyful always. 
Paul is talking to people who have the Holy Spirit. You cannot do without Him. So in essence, church, what Paul is saying here, as a person, of, person in Christ, you can choose to rejoice in all that He is for you. In everything that you do, God is with you. Rejoice. For all that He has done for you, rejoice. For all that He's going to do for you, you rejoice. That's what Paul is saying here. So what we are observing here is that when our focus is on Christ, our labor, our, our servitude, whatever that we do, would bring true joy and freedom. Paul was a servant of Christ because his, his focus was on Christ. Secondly, if our focus is on others, not on us, like Paul, he was a servant of others, of the saints, our labor in the Lord would bring true joy and freedom. So why should you be joyful, you may ask. Pastor, you are not in my shoes. You don't understand what I'm going through. You know, church, God has graciously laid hold of your life. He has chosen you. He has chosen you. I'm a chosen vessel. The gospel has come to you with power. It transformed my life. Rejoice. Yes, I endured great troubles. Yes, the Satan has launched some fierce assaults and attacks on me. But through it all, God has caused me to stand firm. That's why you are even present today. Your testimony is a means of God's blessings to others. It's so true about every one of us, you and me. Church, we have the greatest gift, greatest gift of eternal life. Look back over your Christian life and see what God has done. God has been teaching you. He has placed you among other believers who can encourage and build you up. He has revealed to you the ultimate outcome of your life. What is our ultimate outcome of our lives? If you ask every one of you, you might have a different statements to make. My ultimate outcome of my life may be I need to own a mansion. I need to buy this car. I need to hold this profession. I need to have so much money in my bank. I need to have these children. No, that is not the ultimate outcome of life. If you truly understand and believe what the out ultimate outcome of your life is to be with the Lord forever. Because that is the reality. In the great company of His people with ever-increasing joy, if you truly know that, that you are the recipient of that ultimate outcome, you will serve the Lord joyfully. Because you know where you are heading. You know what is waiting for you at the end of your journey. In His presence, there is fullness of joy. You know, I, I, I really believe that a grumpy Christian is an oxymoron. We cannot make that statement. But sadly, that's what you see today. It takes a lot for us to smile, isn't it? How many people have come to you and told you, there's something different about you? I've said this with you before. My sister-in-law was dying of cancer. She was stage four. 
she was in Dubai and she moved to Sri Lanka. So we used to call her every day and we used to pray with her on the phone. Stage four, doctors have said, no hope. But I call her and I'll ask her, I call her Ani. Ani is like your brother's wife. How are you? I am fine. I am telling you, not a single day I've seen her saying, oh my goodness, what is this life? I'm going to die. With a beaming smile. Why? Because she knew what the ultimate outcome for her is. There was another servant of God here in Mississauga, whom I considered as a, as a, as a great mom, a spiritual mom. And she always tells me, I'm waiting to go and see my dad. I really thought that she, he was talking about her physical dad, but actually later I realized that she was talking about God. But she was so passionate about it. And she served joyfully in the midst of nothing. I saw the joy in this servant of God. I walked her into a house one day, and you know that People, the, the elderly people and in our culture, when you grow up, you, when in, anybody comes to your house, they have to eat. Whether you have already eaten or not, it doesn't matter, you have to eat. I know that some of us can identify with that. We force them to eat. That's our expression of love. So I went to a house and I was in a hurry to go somewhere. I stopped by and, and she said, come, 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 come. Now we have to eat. I'm in a hurry to go for another meeting. She said, no, no, you have to eat. I said, okay, eat, eat what? I'm, I'm looking at the, for the food. There was no food there. And she said, I boiled some water. I'm going to put some rice. I said, okay. I'm looking at the clock. I said, put some rice. Let's start eating. And she said, let's pray for the rice. I'm not kidding, church. She said, let us pray. I was mad inside, trust me. Because in my flesh, I'm thinking, you know, I'm running out of time. I need to go. But I, I, out of respect, I went on my knees with her and she prayed and she said, God, she didn't have rice in the house. She prayed joyfully, trusting God. And while we were praying, somebody knocked on the door. And they brought a bag of rice. And this is what the lady said. She said she was going to Mexico for a holiday. For two weeks, she's going to be away. This bag will get spoiled, so I just want to give it to you. You can use it for your ministry. It happened in, in front of my own eyes. I saw it. We put the rice. We ate, ate, ate meal and went. The joy of the Lord, because you trust the Lord, and you know where you're heading. You know He will never abandon you. You don't need all the tools to serve the Lord. You don't need all the tools to serve the Lord. If your heart is in the right place, when you, have the, when you have the purified heart, when you have the worshipful heart, when, when you have the joyful heart, the Lord will equip you. Psalm 100 speaks of how a Christian joy should be. Look at this verse. I told you a grumpy Christian is an oxymoron. He says, make a joyful shout to the Lord. That's what we have been called to do all the time. And look at the next verse. Serve the Lord with gladness. Please, if there is no joy, just resign from your positions no matter what you want to do for the Lord. I'm not saying that's what the Bible says. 
Serve him with gladness. There must be enthusiasm. There must be the excitement. I'm serving God. And when Christians gather together, it shouldn't be like a funeral home. There must be bubbling, bubbling in joy. Look at this. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. So when you're coming into church, there must be this jubilant, this, this great, it must be a, a contagious thing. Others must look at, wow, this is great. I've come to the house of God. That is what we are called to do when you're serving God. And, and look at this verse number five. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures for all generations. We are thankful because of God's goodness towards us. That's what you're seeing there. So church, in conclusion, so there are three characteristics we learn from these leaders who were chosen by Nehemiah and Ezra. First, he must possess a purified heart, then a worshipful heart, and a joyful heart. Now, when you talk about purified heart, it simply means that it must be above reproach. I gave you the checklist. Please take note of that. Ask these questions when you are in doubt of your behavior. Is it pleasing to the Lord? The series of questions I've given you. Secondly, we should have, must possess a worshipful heart. What does that mean? It means that it means the worship must be, must have humility. The true worship must have faith. True worship must have obedience. Thirdly, I said we should have a joyful heart. Joyful heart simply means that your servanthood must be found in Christ Jesus Christ. And it means that your servanthood must be focused on others. Shall we rise and let's pray? And after that, the worship team can come up. Or I'll wait for the worship team to come, and then I'll pray. Shall you rise, please, for prayers? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn from this uh, narrative in the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for ministering to us today as servants, what the expectations are in order to have a, we need to have a purified heart, a worshipful heart, and a joyful heart. I pray, Father, now you will, as you have convicted us already, we pray that now we will be people who will respond to the message today. And Father, we will be called the true servants of God. That we will hear you say on the day that we are called home, well done the good and faithful servant. That's the plea of our heart of God. Be with us and bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.